Hi guys, welcome back to another episode of Control Alt Career. I'm your host, Jennifer Ong, and in this podcast, I interview people who have taken a leap of faith and pursued an alternative career path in Asia. If you don't know me already, I'm a two-time career switcher and pivoted from BlackRock to fashion startup to now career change coach, where I focus on helping high achievers unhappy with their perfect on paper corporate job, find direction in their career, and pivot into a perfect for you career. So if this sounds like you and you're looking for some help, feel free to send me a message. All right. In today's episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Jane Horan, the founder of The Horan Group, an agency focused on helping organizations build inclusion to retain talent. Before she built her own company, Jane spent her career in HR in Asia, working for different multinational companies ranging from CNBC, Walt Disney, and Kraft Foods. She also has a PhD in education with a focus on Asian women leaders and is the author of several books covering topics ranging from understanding corporate politics to how to succeed as a female leader in Asia. She's got a really fascinating story and I really wanted you guys to hear the whole thing. So I've actually split this episode up into two parts. The first part on Jane's fascinating career journey and how she built the Horan Group. And the second part where Jane shares a lot of practical tips around networking and mentorship. All right, let me hand over to Jane now to share part one of her story. Hi, Jane. So lovely to have you on the podcast here today. Um, And uh, I thought you would be a really cool person to bring onto the podcast because a lot of the times um, people are unhappy with their jobs and they think, oh, I need to just quit my job and find something new. But what I wanted to highlight to everyone today is a lot of times we're unhappy with our corporate jobs, likely because one, we don't find fulfillment at work. And are there ways that we can then find fulfillment at work? Or two, you know, we just don't really know how to navigate corporate politics and we just get super stressed out about it. And so we think, oh, I just need to leave the corporate world and not deal with politics anymore. (laughs) And so I thought, Jane, you were a perfect person to bring on board to talk about these two topics, given that you've written multiple books on this topic and you've done a lot of coaching uh, specifically on how to be politically savvy and and also how to find purpose in your career. But before we get to that, I do want to start off with just getting to know you a little bit better, hear a little bit about your career journey and how you got started in this space. So um, I want us to rewind back all the way to when you were still in school in university. Um, And uh, I want to see, so, so I know that back then you actually studied international business, Spanish and Chinese. So I wanted to get your thoughts on, you know, why you chose those topics uh, to study in school. Oh my gosh. Um, some of it's serendipitous. So I hope that your listeners know that sometimes careers, what you decide to study is serendipitous. Other times we're kind of told. So um, Spanish was something I grew up in Southern California and it was something as a kid I studied. Um, I lived, I didn't live, really live that close to the border, but look, it's the second language in, in Southern California. So I wanted to be able to speak it. Um the Chinese is a different segue, so I can tell you a little bit about that. Um, so I went to the Monterey Institute of International Studies, which is now bought out by Middlebury. And um, I decided that I, as an undergrad, I studied like a, a really fascinating de- 
degree called social ecology, which everybody made fun of me for studying social ecology, but actually it has impacted my life completely. And it is linked to everything I do today, but I thought I needed a bit more rigor. So I went to study international business and it was in that at Monterey where there was an opportunity to move to China. And so I put my Spanish aside and moved to China with the Monterey Institute uh, to teach English in Changsha, Hunan province oh, wow. and study Chinese. Yeah. That's amazing. And so that was just part of the school curriculum. Like it was like an internship or like a summer, summer job of sorts. Well, it wasn't really that. <laughs> um, it's, and this might be of interest to, uh, to some of your listeners. Actually, I wasn't thrilled with the business program. I, I started to question, do I really want to do this? And I was taking a break. And so the Monterey Institute had an opportunity to volunteer to go to China. And so I put my hand up. But I was a Spanish major, not a Chinese major. The Monterey Institute just... Uh, teaches every language known to man. Um, and so I had to really pitch my idea why I wanted to go or why they should accept me. And I, I think there's lots of learning. So I like that you're asking these questions. And I just want to say to who's ever listening, these are things that are really good to figure out what it is you want to do or looking back on your life to figure out what I didn't like or why did I make that choice? Why did I decide to do that? So sometimes it can be serendipitous and sometimes it turns out that that serendipity changes your life, which it did for me. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Okay, so so you decided to go to China. <laughs> um, and so so I guess like what, 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 what happened? Like, was it for a year and then you were gonna yeah. come back to the US? Yeah, um, it was for a year. I was going to come back. I had all these. Uh, I thought about staying in China to really get my Chinese perfect, which it's not and has probably won't be. But um, And then I uh, went, I thought, oh, I could just go into work in an international business, you know, maybe do go to China or whatever. And what happened was I went back to the U.S., had one of those really awful, terrible jobs. And I got an opportunity in that really awful, terrible job to move to Hong Kong. And so I did. And okay. the reason why I moved was, and this is like so funny. I moved because I thought, oh, this would be great. I could practice my Chinese. And of course, hello, Hong Kong's Cantonese. Um, but, uh, and to make it even more complicated, the company that I work for, which is a family run firm, the, the, the father, the grandfather who ran the firm spoke a Wuxi dialect. So nobody inside the company knew what anybody else was saying. It was just one of those really funny moments. So, but my boss who hired me was a Mandarin speaker. So yeah. anyway, going back and, to Hong Okay. So was that like the first job out of university for you? And, and what were you doing in that job? It was actually out of graduate school, university, okay. my first job, funny enough which is actually, it was selling wine and marketing and selling small vineyards. Um, oh, wow. Um, it, it, this was the job that landed me in HR and I so wasn't an HR person, but it, it was one of those where I thought, well, I really want to go back to Asia. I'll just say I can do it. And, um, and then I landed and I turned out to be the head of HR for these um, family run companies that were, actually all in um, electronics, um, uh, printed circuit boards and things like that. So yeah, so I ended up, I, I fell, literally fell into HR. 
Wow. So, so as in the person who hired you was like, Hey, we're looking for someone in Hong Kong to do HR. Do you know anybody or do you want to be part of the team? Yeah. And even though you didn't have HR experience, you were like, Hey, you know what? I want to be back in Asia. Let me raise my hand for this. Yeah, it was a little bit like that. It was actually one of my clients at the company I was working for was was dealing with this this client in Hong Kong, and she gave them my name. And then the he was the CEO. He called me and said, "Oh, we heard about your background in China. Would you be interested in moving here to head our HR department?" And I went, "Sure." I had That's no amazing. Idea. <laughs> I mean, as as you said, right? Sometimes it is so serendipitous. Um, and who knew that your decision to study Chinese uh, back in school would then uh, come come to play here? And I guess back then, were you very intrigued by, you know, being in China or it really just so happened that you had this opportunity at school and you were sent to China? I was fascinated by it. Um, and even everybody in my family said, you're doing what? <laughs> um, you were studying Spanish. Why are you going to China? But I was really fascinated by it. And I saw it as a huge opportunity. Um, and so China has since obviously boomed. Um, I, um, I, we had to study a lot of cross-cultural, which is another link to some of the work that I do today or my research. Um, so we had to do deep research in Chinese philosophy, literature, cross-cultural. Um, and at one point you're like, really, why do I need to do this? But that really, why do I need to do this has actually served me well. And um, I think it's critically important to try to get, and it's not just studying cultures, it's actually being there, living there, speaking, eating, working, you know, I think that's what gives you an appreciation for different cultures. Mm. And so actually now as a career coach, looking back on your your career, right? Um, and having these moments where it was very serendipitous, um, versus, you know, some people who might approach it with a more planned mindset. How do you feel about this? There are times where I wish I were more planned. <laughs> um, I, I coach a lot of people who are planned and, um, and, you know, I've achieved a lot. Um, I think both routes work. It just depends on who you are. I do think that life is like careers is serendipitous and, you kind of need to go with, oh, this is probably going against the grain, but you kind of need to go with what's, whatever that um, voice is telling you. Uh, and and I actually have a, a story about that, which led me to decide to go uh, do my doctorate in leadership, um, which was a, an event that happened to me that I went, I can't do this anymore. I need to do something different. So I've, I think I've always gone with my gut. And the messages I've heard internally from myself to say, okay, it's time to move on. Mm. But I do there. I really have a lot of admiration for people who are more planful. Mm. But I guess, as you said, right, depends on on the person and maybe some um, uh, different different styles. Just a different style. Yeah. Um, okay. So so you you know you move, pack your bags up, you move to Hong Kong, you start in this um, HR space that you previously didn't have any experience in. Did you feel any sort of imposter syndrome? Because I think a lot of people, when they, um, you know, move to a new industry or move move into a new world, they're like, I I can't possibly do this. Like I I don't have any experience in it. Um, was that something that you faced yourself as well? Yeah, I you know I kind of a love hate with that relationship with that word imposter syndrome, and I look at things a little bit differently. Absolutely scared. Like what am I doing? 
But I think that that type of doubt is really critical. Um, I think I think there's two sides to whether it's imposter syndrome or doubt or whatever we decide to call it. Like if I just showed up and went, yeah, I can do this. I think that sheer arrogance that, well, I probably, you know, I shouldn't have that job. So when I started questioning, like, do I really know what I'm doing? No, but you're going to find out because you're in this role. So I think uh, doubt and imposter syndrome are good because it keeps you humble and it keeps you uh, say, okay, now, yeah, I'm a little bit nervous. So what do I need to do? And then you start pulling on all of your different senses, whether it be going to a social network to help, whether it's going to a book to help, whether it's just kind of sitting back and listening to people. Um, look at what I wasn't doing brain surgery, so <laughs> we were good. <laughs> um, but I wanted to ask you, right? I think a lot of people don't necessarily, it doesn't come as naturally that sort of uh, willingness to say yes, right? It's like, hey, my resume shows I only have experience in sales, selling uh, selling uh, wines, right? That was your your prior experience. Yeah. yeah. Um, for someone to say yes to this role, it feels like such a big leap. So for you back then, was it just quite natural? Like you were like, you know what, I'm gonna give this a shot. Or I guess like, how would you advise someone who might want to take this leap, but is afraid to do so? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, I, I, you know, it gets to something we were going to talk about on purpose and not saying, oh, it was my purpose to be in, in study Chinese, but I just felt like I really wanted to be in Asia. I really, whether it be China or Hong Kong, I just wanted to be there. So that was my driver. Mm -hmm. And, um, and look, if somebody would have said, can you be in charge of finance? Uh, no, I wouldn't have signed up for that because it wasn't my area of expertise. Um, but I felt like, you know, even selling wine, what you are is you're influencing people, you're getting to know people, you're talking to people. There's some, there's a lot of overlaps to HR. And what I, what I would say to people is a lot of times we'll, we'll stay in our area, right? If it's HR or finance or whatever it is, marketing, but there's a lot of those skill sets or strengths or values, whatever it is that apply to other places. So I have actually coached, just a little segue on this, I've actually coached lawyers who decide, I think we might've spoke about this once. I find that a lot of people, their parents will say, well, you're going to finance or be a lawyer, or, you know, go to be a doctor. <laughs> I find a lot of lawyers come to me probably in their mid thirties in Asia Pacific. And they'll say, I really hate what I'm doing. Um, if you, if we start to map out what's all involved in being a lawyer, and there's many different types of lawyers, then you can start to see, oh, I could apply that here. I could do it here. I could do it here. And I, I, that's how I look at things. I actually have an opportunity to coach uh, women in academics that are thinking about maybe I should leave this field. Imagine all the opportunities that are available to people in academics that are outside of academia. So, so I just think we need to open our scope to say, yeah, I can apply this someplace else. So th I think really going back down to understanding your strengths and how you can potentially translate that into a different industry or into a different role. Yep. Yeah. Um, cool. So, so um, you know, you moved to Hong Kong. You started this role. Um, what what next? What next? How was what was that like? The role was challenging, um, but it's another thing we're going to talk about too is politics. So what a lot of people think is, 
uh, first of all, you know, I don't like political savvy and I don't like politics and all of that. And some people say, I'm just going to work for a family run firm because they don't have any politics there. Well, that's <laughs> not the truth. <laughs> and if you are an outsider, and I don't mean politics negatively, and I mean, it from there's a good side and a bad side to every competency. It, but it's not the truth that you can escape um, organizational dynamics or political savvy in a corporation versus a versus a family-run company versus being an entrepreneur. The the the, the skill sets in that are still impacted in that. So so, but in a family-run firm, just like in a multinational, leadership shifts, right? And so, if you are tied to one person, sometimes that can be a career-limiting move. Um, there's the different leadership shifts. You kind of have to follow them and have a, a broad network. So, so, so what happened was there was lots of shifts going on, lots of changes. And, um, here's another serendipitous thing. I saw that the Walt Disney company was looking for a head of HR and it was in a consumer products business in Hong Kong. And I was like, when I was little, I always wanted to work for the Walt Disney. I mean, you could see the castle from down the street from my house. We were quite far away, but you could see it because it was that high. Um, and uh, so I applied. And um, and I, I think that was serendipitous and fortuitous because the there were some strange dynamics going on inside the company that I was working for. And... I'd always wanted to work for Disney and I thought I'll never get this job because I I'd applied for Disney forever and was turned down and then I was hired. And so that's, that shifted my career completely still a part of sort of in an HR type function, but that led me to get into other areas. Wow. That that's so, that's so fascinating. Um, and, you know, looking back, do you feel like you understood why they decided to hire you at this point versus at other points? Uh, you know what? It was probably fortunate timing being in Hong Kong. They were really new. They didn't even have, um, they had consumer products and were thinking about doing stores and pulling out media. And I think it was just the right, the right place, right time. You know, one of those mm -hmm. events. So, mm -hmm. and I Again. actually used my sales skills to talk myself. Uh, <laughs> Critical skill. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> Um, and at this point, you know, were you still pretty happy in HR? You were like, this is my calling. This is my path. Um, or were you still kind of sussing it out? That was another reason why I just, it was funny. That's another reason why I decided to leave. One of the things that happened in the, with the family run firm is I had, they were going through changes and they wanted me to make a lot of people redundant. And honestly, as hard as I could try it. I could give all the business decisions. I actually am more focused on people and communities and society. And I, I had a hard time with it. Um, but, and so, so I did not like HR because I found that HR and no disrespect in the HR people on the call, but it, I was always having to lay off people. And I'm like, I'm so done with this. No, I, it's not me. It's not what I want to do. I didn't want to do compensation and benefits, which I was in. I got involved in. I didn't want to do forecasting. Uh, so I segued into learning and development, which was where I really thought I wanted to be. 
And then from there, I'm segued into organizational design and development, which is where I truly wanted to be. So all of it was a learning curve that led me to where I really wanted to be, which links back to my first degree, which is really funny because it, it organizational development looks at all the interworkings of all the organization. And that's what I learned in my first degree in social ecology. It, they're all interrelated. They're all interconnected. And you have to understand all parts of it when you're either driving a change or doing something different. So that's so cool. And I think it's really interesting that you kind of test drove your way into this, right? You were like, okay, like let's, it was maybe like a, a combination of you um, circumstances, right? Like this opportunity happened. And so you got into HR because you wanted to be in uh, China or Hong Kong. Um, then you know, you test drove different aspects of HR, you realize I don't really like, you know, dealing with like benefits and compensation. And I actually do like more leadership and development. And that's how you kind of ended up where you are today. Um, and and having the focus with like organizational development. So I feel that that's, that's super cool. Thank um, you. <laughs> cool. So, so, you know, you worked at Disney for actually quite a, a number of years. Yeah. Um, and did you move around different roles? at Disney or? I did. I started in HR, um, moved into, at that time it's called training and development, learning development, moved into leadership, then moved into organizational development and took over talent management, um, uh, talent management role. So looking at the high potential talent, how are we developing them? Where are we uh, moving them to, you know, that whole gamut. And then, um, but what was really nice about Disney is um, it's a, it's a fascinating company. A lot of people think when you say Disney, they go parks and parks is, you know, it's a physical place and we all know it, but there are so many other parts of Disney that people don't realize. I mean, the uh, certainly they have the whole gaming business. And at that time it was called like um, internet business, but they've got media networks, which is huge. One of the biggest part of Disney is media networks. They have films, publishing, sports. I mean, it, it has it all. And so if you work there and each one has a different organizational culture, it's, it's quite fascinating to be able to navigate the shifts or the differences in those, in those cultures on, in Disney. So fascinating, wonderful opportunity and absolutely loved it. Um, and I got to do so many different things. So, yeah. That's amazing. So dream job, you would say. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> dream company, dream job. I'm interrupting my very own episode to let you guys know about my career coaching program that's designed to help you go from lost and frustrated with your corporate job to living and crushing it in your dream career. So if you're feeling unfulfilled, despite having that perfect, prestigious, high-paying job, or if you're someone who's great at chasing and acing other people's dreams but have no idea what your own dreams and goals are, well, today you're in luck. I'm sharing my three-step framework to help you find your passion and get career clarity. If that sounds like something you would want, check out today's show notes to download the free guide now. All right, back to the episode. Um, and so what made you decide to move on from, from Disney? Well, that's that thing that I told you in the very beginning. I, I had this voice in my head. I remember standing back in the, the Disneyland Hotel that had just been built. I was in the back of the room. Um, <clears throat> heading up a big media event for the head of uh, media networks at that time. And there was this really loud voice that said, 
I, I don't want to do this anymore. And it was really so loud that I, Jennifer, I really turned around to look around and going, who's talking, right? It was me. And when you get that really strong message, you then have to say, okay, so what is it that I want to do? And that was the really hard part because here it is, like you said, dream job, wonderful company, no complaints, but it was just this inertia inside me that said, I can't, I can't do this anymore. I need to do something different. And so I had to really take a step back to figure out what that was. And that's what led me to write that book that I, that, um, on finding purpose at work. Cause I felt like I didn't have, I, it just wasn't holding true for me anymore. Like I had moved on <clears throat> from this. Wow. So like you've outgrown maybe that role and maybe the things that you value now are not really being satisfied at that job that it used to. So how did you figure this out? I think a lot of us have that big voice in our heads. It's like, Hey, we need to move on or, Hey, this is not, not quite the right role for us. But I think where we, a lot of people struggle is how do we then go and figure this out for ourselves? Yeah. Um, I'm going to tell you that a, a big mistake that I made, which was the greatest learning, very painful. Um, but uh, so I, I, I went on that path of trying to figure it out. Uh, what are my values? What, what's important to me? What do I want to do? And um, I got a job offer. And so I thought, oh, wow. I had two small children. I have twins. And I said, you know, I can't just be navel gazing. <laughs> so I thought all navel gazes in my new job. So I took a new job, which brought me to Singapore. Wonderful role. And um, then uh, redundancies and everybody was laid off. And so um, so then I really had to answer that question as, okay, now what do you want to do? And and so uh, so that so the I would say my biggest mistake was I went into a job that I sort of knew and I'd done before. And I wasn't, it wasn't, it was the same thing, like, why am I here? Um, and then serendipitously, the kind of the macro stuff happened and I lost that job. And so I really had to dig deep. So what I did is I started asking myself about my values and I said, what are my top three values? Uh, and I know for some people they're like, oh, really, we've all done the values work. But really, if you start to unpack your values, you're going to see uh, how they show up at work and what's important to you for a role. And then from there, I started asking myself, um, well, what are my strengths? What, what do I do really well? And what do I, what am I not really good at? And I, and then, so it's, it's, I write about this a lot. Um, that being laid off was a pivotal event in my life. It wasn't happy. Um, I was in a country I didn't know very well. Yes, Singapore is fabulous, but I literally had just landed here, knew no one. Like I'd been in Hong Kong forever and knew everyone. And I'd never really, I'd spent most of my career here. So I couldn't just go, oh, just go back to America. Like, where was I going to go? So, um, so I started really digging deep and, um, and decided I was going to um, launch my business because my three values are, um, are very much aligned with my business. And what I think my strengths are, were actually Funny enough, I got a, a performance review at Disney, and this is going to make crack you up that somebody uh, in the review, it said I was too nice. Mm -hmm. So like, so like, I'm like, okay, how do you, do you show up mean on Monday? <laughs> you just, how do you change that? Like that was yeah. no help to me, but it wasn't a help 
that I went nice, nice. It's not nice. It's that I care about people. So it goes back to making people redundant. And so I thought, okay, that's what the nice part is. I like to help people. So can I create a business out of doing this? And so my first thing that I want to do was, was I was on a mission to change the world about political savvy and teach everybody about political savvy. That's easier said than done. There's a lot of people who just cringe at that word politics. I even have it now. Somebody asked me to change the write-up for a workshop I'm doing and I get it. So I don't, you know, I, I, we eventually end up talking about political savvy, but um, so yeah, so that's, so I guess to answer your question, it's values, it's strengths, it's looking at some of those ups and downs in your careers and what choices you made. Uh, and that's where the serendipitous part is both good and bad. Oh, well, you've always been very serendipitous. Should you have made that decision? You know, should you have made that decision to take a job just because, oh, it was a job. So, um, so it's lots of life learning lessons in that, but you have to map it across some pretty structured questions to unpack who you are. You could do this at work too. You don't have to have a, you know, a pivotal event. It could be a, a promotion that you got that you like you stepped into and you think, oh, I have imposter syndrome or doubt. How did you get through that? It could be um, something that really bat you were overlooked for a promotion. You know, all these different things that happen in life are learning points. And it's, and I think that some people say, well, I haven't learned anything from them is because you have to map it against some pretty reflective questions and start digging deep and figure out um, what your values, who's your support network during that time. So all of it's interrelated. And so when you were mapping out your values, do you mind sharing a little bit about how you thought through this? Because I think a lot of people are like, okay, my values, but then how do I, how did you translate those values into building your own company? Because, you know, your whole career was based off of, you know, working at a corporate or, you know, working for someone. Yeah. Um, how did you realize through this exercise that, hey, building a company is what I should do next? Yeah. So I, um, you can, there's so many values things out there on the, on Google, right? So I think I took a list. I, I know what I did. I took a list of values and I start looking at it. It's actually it's harder than you think because there's so many and you you pick like, oh, I've got seven, you know, and I'm just like, don't do seven, just do three. I, and I, when I work with people, I try to kind of narrow it down. Um, Cause what, seven values, what are you going to do with, you know, how are you going to map them against your, your career? So actually I, there was a really, I, I write about this in my book. There's a really funny thing. Um, I, I really strongly believe um, going back to when you were little, like go way back and figure out what were the messages that you heard. I, I had the wonderful opportunity when I lost my job, I was actually studying for my doctorate and I was interviewing women in the Asia Pacific region. And so the two things were kind of overlapping. I'm interviewing women and I'm asking questions about their values and I'm, I'm in, I'm hearing stories about their lives. I'm seeing where their values are playing out across their lives and take them to be the leader that they are today. So there's a lot of power and values. So I went back to a story when I was a little kid that my brother asked me what, I was really little. My brother said, what's your, what profession do you want to be? And I'm like, profession, I'm like five or six, right? And I said, I know I want to be a bird. And he's like, you can't be a bird. A profession. But when I looked at that word, bird, what is a bird? A bird's freedom, a bird's flight, a bird's adventurous. 
So I literally went to that level and freedom was what I landed on. Mm. That was one. And I meant freedom in every sense of the word, uh, freedom to be able to say what I needed to say inside and in, in without hurting somebody, a financial freedom, freedom to travel, freedom to work with different clients. Authenticity was another one. I wanted to be really authentic. I think sometimes in roles where we have to maybe not say things that uh, we know is happening, particularly with the redundancy, which I didn't feel comfortable with, um, freedom and helping others. Like those are the three I landed on. Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, how do we build something around this? And so then I started digging into that. Well, what are your what are your strengths? And, you know, asking those types of questions and where do you really, accept? what, what, what wakes you up in the morning? What gives you energy? So all of those questions are really important. Uh, so that's what I would do with the values. I would, I would literally go back to when you were a kid, what did you like to do? What was important to you? What did your parents tell you? You know, somebody's going to have a story like that with a bird or something else that you think, oh, that silly story. Really? Does that, and it does, it has meaning. Mm, tells you a lot about you know what the underlying I think it's really reading between the lines right looking back yeah. and reading between the lines to try to draw themes about your life yep and yep. what you care about um and so you know once you identified those values were there a few options you were exploring where you're like hey one option is I build my own company the other option is something else um or were you like okay this is this is the path let's go always 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 thinking should I go get a job? <laughs> so even though I had, and this is probably just me, I don't think it's other people who built their own businesses. Because um, you because you nailed it. I was in the corporate world for so long. How did I think, or why did I think I could, not that I couldn't be an entrepreneur, but that I'd be able to make a living out of this, right? And so... Um, I've always had in the back of my mind, should I just go get a role? Should I do a contract job? Should I go in-house? Should I, um, but I've always stayed true to running my business and then learned along the way. Uh, uh, yeah, so that, that was, it was always that flip-flop for quite a number of years. But that, that's, that's so interesting. And I, and I think, um, I mean, even speaking personally to myself, right, sometimes like I, do you feel like, wait, why did I decide to start my own company? There's a lot of hurdles that come from starting your own company that you don't need to deal with when you are working for someone. You're like, oh, it is pretty nice to like have all these corporate benefits and, and, and all of that. Um, so I think it, it is it is definitely something that um, a lot of entrepreneurs out there do face where it's like, hey, should we have gone back to a job? Should we have built the business? Um, and I think uh, a lot of people who from the outside, you might think, hey, actually, all these people don't face any of these questions, like they're just so sure about their decision. But I wanted to highlight uh, to some of you guys listening, that actually, it is a battle, you do flip flop back and forth, there are moments of doubt, many, many moments of doubt. Um, and it's just how you push through despite those those doubts. It's not like we're another breed, and we don't have any of these doubts. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I think I was glad you said that, because I was thinking, oh, did I say the wrong thing? But... <laughs> No. <laughs> um, so I know that you also went back to school and got your PhD um, some uh, at around this time as well, right? Um, so I wanted to get your thoughts on, you know, what, what why you decided to go back to school um, and get a PhD. Yeah, I started my PhD when I was at Disney because I, I think that kind of that voice in my head, there was a lead up to it. I 
I was a little, I was a bit bored. And uh, so I decided to do a PhD when I was there. It was a part-time PhD through Bristol University and was taught at the universities in Hong Kong. And it was around leadership education, which is what I was doing. And one of the things I didn't think that we were doing such a good job at leadership education. I'm not just talking about Disney. I'm talking about all companies because you're always doing leadership programs, leadership programs. So I wanted to find out uh, what it is to be a leader. And I, I, and it was my sponsor who said, you should really look at Asian women in leadership because you've been here for so long. I thought, oh, that's a great idea. So that's what I did. Um, so I started that at Disney and then I continued it um, when I came here. And I guess for the motivation was I'm, you know, another one of my values is learning, like always learning. I love to learn. And, um, and I'd always wanted to go back to school and get a doctorate. I just, I, I always wanted one. And so it's one of those things that I just decided I'm going to, I'm going to do. That's amazing. And so, you know, you focus very much on Asian women in leadership roles. Um, and as an Asian woman myself, <laughs> who has a lot to learn about leadership, um, what are some things that you can, you can share with us? About what I learned in that research? Yeah. I know it's quite a vague question, but I wanted to see, um, yeah, I mean, what are some things that you could share with us? Yeah. So I'll tell you, um, so I'm a qualitative researcher, uh, which is, I used a, a, a methodology called cross-cultural narrative inquiry. That's just kind of a big word for storytelling. Um, Bristol University is actually known for this. The cross-cultural piece was obviously I'm American and everyone I interviewed was uh, from Asia, different parts of Asia. So I would I would ask pretty broad questions and um, let their stories unfold, which was incredibly powerful for me to meet. And it wasn't just I didn't interview CEOs. I interviewed some people who were running companies, some people were two or three levels below, multinationals, NGOs, all of it. What I learned um, is an incredible amount of perseverance uh, in a decision to, uh, if I want to do this, whatever this is, I'm gonna make certain I do it. Um, so one woman in my research was from Taiwan and she knew growing up, she would have to learn English. And so she literally listened to Shakespeare every day. Like, oh my God. like I would have, I would have never done that with Chinese or Spanish, right? So it was like, oh my God. Um, and then another couple other women had had some pretty early tragedies in their life that catapulted them into a leadership role in their families, but it was that perseverance to get through and all these stories on perseverance and resilience and fortitude. So that was one thing I, I found. The other thing that I found that was incredibly powerful, and I wrote a chapter on it was purpose and, uh, and I wrote a chapter of my dissertation on spirituality because that's what I thought it was, but it, it's it, not spirituality in a sense, it's purpose. And every single woman, I interviewed uh, over a hundred women up and down the Asia Pacific region um, would say, if I don't, I'm not doing a role that has impact, then that's when I decide to leave. And it's not that they were deciding to leave the workforce period. They would either start their own business or do something else. Right. And so 
what I was thinking, because I was starting to do this work in diversity, equity, inclusion to say organizations should kind of unpack this because this is the sweet spot. Uh, and then I found some quantitative data to support that, that women were more purpose-driven um, like when they go into work in the workforce and as they move up the organization. And it actually at different pivotal events. So if you decide, if you leave to take care of family, whether that's a baby or a, a older parents or whatever it is, when you come back, this is when it's really important or a long leave it's really important to kind of unpack what does purpose mean to me? And it's not that the organization can say, oh, Jennifer, here's your purpose. You need to unpack this. Then it goes to, well, how do you unpack it? That's where values and strengths and pivotal events come to play. So, so it all comes together and it came together in my research. So that was one. The third one that I learned that I think is so, so amazing. And I talk about this a lot is that Every single woman I interviewed had a really diverse, robust um, network in place. And, um, and they said, if it wasn't for this network, I wouldn't be where I am today. All of them. And the network was pretty, you know, I went from India to Japan. They were pretty much matching, right? And then I found a quantitative piece that matches this too. So it was definitely having a mentor, but a mentor for my research was always a family member, which I thought was really interesting. And another interesting thing that I found was, this is really, this is really fascinating. For women in finance, it was their father that was the mentor. For women in tech, it was their mother that was the mentor. And there was another woman doing research like mine. She was in Malaysia. She found the exact same thing. And she's a quantitative researcher. And I, I started to unpack and do a lot around networks. Um, and sorry, a little buzz. <laughs> started doing something on, on, I started looking into networks. Like, is because I'm qualitative, right? Has anybody else found this? So I found another woman at Chinese University in Hong Kong, similar things found networks were different in North America than they were with Asian women, women in North America, separated family and professional women in Asia pulled them together. It was very in, um, inclusive. And then I found another person in the U S that does quantitative data, data on, on networks. And he had mapped the categories that I found. One of them was political savvy. Every single woman that I interviewed said, I had somebody who showed me the ropes. Mm. I had somebody who was a savvy advisor. I was like, oh, okay. yeah. So yeah, it was quite, that's the, that, those are the three things that I found that were really mm. fascinating. And that's, yeah. That's so interesting. And on the, on the topic of political savvy, what, I think that there's so much to learn about how to navigate corporate politics, right? And I'm sure you could probably spend another 10 hours talking about um, how to navigate corporate politics effectively. But what are, you know, a handful of tips that you see have really made a difference for some of the clients that you coach? One of the things that I found with Savvy is it has such a negative connotation, right? So, um, and so... I did research on this, um, and, and again, it was actually started, uh, my segue into Savvy started when I was at the Walt Disney Company. I was quite fascinated by it. Um, it it starts out negative, right? Everybody thinks political savvy is negative. But if you, if you look at any competency framework, 
it, it's pretty much on every single competency framework. Uh, that's what I start seeing in every multinational, they have a reference to political savvy. But if we look at driving for results, driving results actually can have a negative side to it, but it always starts out positive. But if you're driving for results and you're killing everybody in the process, that's not that that's negative, right? Political savvy starts at negative and people don't move it to the positive. So one is being aware of political savvy, that it is a critical leadership skill and it, and it has a dark side and a light side, a positive side and a negative side, skilled and unskilled and sometimes overskilled. And so that's the first part. How do I now go, okay, I get it. It's part of every organization. Now let me see some of the things I need to do to be savvy. And um, there's links to empathy. Absolutely. I mean, um, Daniel Goleman wrote about political awareness in his book in the 1990s. Like he has a whole piece on political awareness that he talks about understanding it doesn't have to do with where you are inside the organization. You have to understand the power networks inside the organization, who makes decisions and how decisions are made. And you have to understand the interconnections of informal networks uh, operating inside organizations. So awareness, power dynamics from a positive side, decision-making, and then who are, what's this kind of like, I just call it this web or a maze, like, some people in savvy are known as maze bright. They can look at the organization and go, I see who's connected to who. I see who I should talk to. I see who I should bring into my inner circle to pitch this idea. So it's about looking at the organization more holistically. Um, and yeah, I think those were the, uh, those are kind of the parts I would say, yeah, there's so much underneath it that I could talk to you about for hours. <laughs> And there you have it, part one of my conversation with Jane. Here's a couple key takeaways that I got from this conversation. One, some opportunities can be serendipitous, but others can be planned. Jane believes that both can work, but it really depends on who you are as a person. So listen to yourself. For Jane, she followed her gut. When she felt she needed to move on from her dream company at Disney, she took a step back to figure out what it was that she wanted to do and then took action towards it. Two, narrow your values down to your three core values. And if you're struggling to figure that out, go back to your childhood. When Jane was five, she wanted her profession to be a bird, which sounds really ridiculous, but actually the bird represented many of the things that she values still today which is freedom, authenticity, and helping others. Three, when she was doing her PhD research, she found that for every single woman that she spoke to, purpose is truly important. When they no longer found that they made an impact and they no longer felt purposeful at work, they would move on to the next role. Four, another thing that Jane observed in her career is that every leader has a robust network. And every one of them had said that if it wasn't for their network, they would never have been in this senior position in the first place. And they also usually had a mentor to show them the ropes. And lastly, on being politically savvy, you must first understand how your organization works. And empathy is key to this. Figure out how decisions are made and what informal networks are in place. And that's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Control-Alt-Career.
Check out part two of my conversation with Jane Horan, where we deep dive into practical tips around networking and mentorship. And if you like this episode, I'd so appreciate it if you can leave me a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts and share this with a friend who maybe isn't so happy with their corporate job and need a little extra inspiration. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'll see you guys in part two. Thank you.